Having trouble staffing up? You're not alone. Our industry is facing an unprecedented labor shortage, and tech will play a central role in solving that problem. Yelp Kiosk was built in 2018 for restaurants who couldn't afford to pay a dedicated host. In 2021, Yelp Kiosk is supporting restaurants that want to do more with less. By adding Kiosk, your host is no longer trapped behind the host stand, enabling them to assist in all front-of-house operations. Learn more about how Kiosk can help your restaurant at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash kiosk. Now here we go. It's hard to find your footing, I think, in the space for an independent restaurateur or a small business owner to have leverage. I think that the biggest thing that I can say is to do it authentically and to share your story in the best way possible. And if you do those things, most of the time people take note of it. They gravitate towards it. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. If a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? If an amazing restaurant opens and no one knows about it, does it have a chance at survival? Today we chat with media maven Max Block of Carving Block PR. He runs us through the tools and tactics he uses to get his clients the exposure they deserve and need to survive in a digital world. I think that it's something that you don't really see. My parents weren't chefs. They weren't front facing, really. They were more behind the scenes and they were integral to the success of restaurants. You know, I've been going to places like Masuhitsa and Capo since I could barely walk and knew that my parents were known there, but I didn't realize that it was because of the indelible job that obviously they had done. And I also grew up in a family that cooked. We cooked every night. I would be stirring risotto and my brother would be making salad dressing. And so I always loved food. But growing up in LA, I was very much attached to the side of entertainment and thought that that was where I was going to end up. And it wasn't until I had a short stint, very short stint at CAA that I realized that talent and entertainment maybe not wasn't the exact world I wanted to work in. And the first job I had after college, Josiah Citron is a dear family friend of ours. And he agreed to let my parents put me in the back of the kitchen with Ken. And I think I survived maybe two dinner services of <laughs> vacuum sealing chicken breasts and then rolling herbs and wet paper towels. So I was kind of lost at this cross section of where I wanted to go. But I was lucky that I knew that food was always this constant that I had that I was lucky to finally find my path forward in. Well, and your path forward is you probably chose the most glamorous angle within the industry, right? Which is public relations. I mean, glamour's not necessarily how I would describe it, but you know, it's a, <laughs> <laughs> it's a unique place within the job. I feel like it's such an interesting place right now because social media has diminished a lot of the ways by which PR works. Chefs are DMing and speaking with journalists directly. They're being reached out to. So it's definitely a different side of the business now. But as I like to tell people, at the end of the day, I get paid to eat and that's a pretty decent job to have. Well, and I think everybody gets into their field, especially from an entrepreneurial perspective. You start your business because you feel like you have something new and different to offer either the world or your industry. It's why I started this show. It's why I opened every restaurant that I opened. Why did you start Carving Block? So I was lucky to work under an agency called Wagstaff Worldwide, was my first kind of big place that I was at. And Mary Wagstaff is a legend. She has really carved this beast out. 
And when I started there, there was only one LA office. There was two at some point. I think they've maybe downsized since then. And so I think there was maybe three offices and 40 employees. By the time I left, there was six or seven offices and like 110 employees. The whole thing was, it was a juggernaut. It was completely different. And unfortunately, a little bit of that team camaraderie went out the window when the company is that size. I was also starting a secondary business at the time called The Fair Trade. The Fair Trade was a subscription box model where we worked with chefs from across the country to curate baskets of their favorite artisanal products, complemented by recipes and video tutorials. And I was super passionate about shining a light on small artisanal makers and the chefs that utilize them and showing people around the country that there were amazing small batch mustards coming out of Tennessee or the best oatmeal that you'd ever heard of coming out of Willamette Valley and saw this great cross-section of experiences with PR and realized that this was a niche that Carving Block, the name of the company that I own, could hold and got super excited about it. And we were lucky at that point to have some larger brands like LVMH and Soho House and Summit Series come to us and seek us out to create culinary strategies for them through a more experiential lens and then lean into our more traditional PR to market them outwardly and make sure that they were getting the press and the awareness that they had wanted for those activations. I would say you were definitely ahead of the curve, which is one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you because the idea of a culinary experience that extends beyond like the four walls of a restaurant has kind of been your whole bag. And so I'm curious to know, have you been able to ride this wave? Yeah. I mean, look, food to me transcends uh, almost all mediums. I think that you've got probably sex, music, and food. And those are the things that people around the world, no matter who you are, who you love, what you listen to, you can share a great meal with someone anywhere and in any space and any time. And so for us, we can apply that logic to what larger brands are doing. And you know, what is the new line for Chevrolet? What does it taste like? How do you apply their methodology as it relates to a car onto the plate and then identify the chefs and strategies by which kind of coalesce into a larger memorable experience. And it's fun. It's creative. It's really interesting. We've been lucky enough to work with people and companies like FX or Amazon Studios and take their movie titles and then break them down and look at, again, what are the characteristics and traits of these main characters and how do you apply them into the thought process of what a meal might look like? Well, and so that's where the art is, right? It's kind of in this intersection between storytelling and brand positioning. Is that, am I getting it right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty much it. Look, we like to think of it as a creative agency that's anchored by culinary. So we do have clients that are existing within a more traditional viewpoint. So the Caruso's, the Grand Central Markets of the world that are coming to us and looking to us to create strategies that by which are going to garner awareness. And then we have more of the esoteric deliverables that will be someone like Amazon Prime with the boys coming to us and asking us to help create Billy's Butcher Shop with Ludo Lefebvre and create this consumer experience by which people can eat something but feel like they're being transported into whatever world that may look like. Yeah, I want to build on that. And I kind of want to spill the tea for a minute. I don't know if the kids still say spill the tea, (laughs) but if they do, where do you think most PR agencies are going wrong? What do you think that they're not doing for their restaurant clients that's a missed opportunity? I think that... PR is an ever-evolving kind of game. And I think that sometimes for some agencies, they get stuck in a thought process by which it's kind of keyed in at this point. You write a press release, you send it out pretty wide, and you anticipate for what the results are going to be. 
I think that there's a lot to be said about restaurants ideating themselves and positioning themselves as brands themselves. And everything that they do needs to communicate that outwardly, whether it's your social media strategy, whether that is how you are sending out a press release, what does that press release look like? There's so many creative outlets that we have to our disposal that we like to use all of them. Not every same strategy that worked for one client is going to work for all of them. And I think that flexing those creative muscles and really utilizing that is what has separated us from the pack. And look, at the end of the day, we also, my team loves food. We love what we do. We're out there every night eating and experiencing and being more than a PR flack for a company. We like to think of ourselves as extensions of those teams. And I'm one of the few publicists that I think of chefs actually like, hopefully. So I think that differentiates me from the pack in itself. And I would say that there are probably two major outlets for PR and press at this point, and you specialize in both. So the first is traditional media, right? Like the listicles, the whole nine yards, that for the most part has kind of come back in the same vein that it was in prior to the pandemic. But the other is, is that you don't really need those outlets to reach the people that are interested in what you do for a living as a restaurateur. And what I've noticed is you also have a central focus on helping the restaurants create media that they can then send out directly to the masses through their social media accounts, through their website. Yeah. I mean, look, at this point right now, we are running a campaign with the Chainsmokers at Casa Vega, which will run through the entire month of May 2021, where they are doing a charitable taco and margarita for No Us Without You. Look, they were lucky to come to Las Vegas. Las Vegas obviously is a legend and the Mexican food space here in Los Angeles going into their 65th year. And so there's strategies like that, that obviously cross-sectionality between entertainment with food. Luckily, celebrities and talent really do love some of these restaurants and have natural relationships with them. Secondarily, we look at someone's brand audience and who is dining out at Grand Central Market and how does that relate to Jaritos, authentic Mexican soda, and what can we create together with both of those brands that's going to reach a new audience for us that isn't just the people that are reading Eater or Infatuation and is really going to drive eyeballs in that kind of natural, organic way. Well, and then in terms of strategic partnerships, because you can look at Casa Vega partner, not just with the chain smokers, they partnered with the Foo Fighters as well, all in an effort to help know us without you. And I've known Othan and Damien and that team over at Know Us Without You for a hundred years at this point. And it's amazing to see the momentum that they've been able to create organically and how that's been facilitated through partnerships like this and the buy-in of people with much bigger audiences. But how does a partnership like that come about? Is that you as kind of the puppet master saying, I have this relationship and this relationship and they could work together to benefit? So there's two different angles. Obviously, Casa Vega is a beast of its own. So with the few fighters, Dave and Christy happened to be friends before. I think that he wanted to showcase his barbecue shops. I think that she obviously saw an opportunity and they put their heads together. For most of that stuff, some of them, again, it goes back to the world by which we kind of walk right now. So, you know, when you go to Gigi's in the Melrose Media District, there's famous faces, there's people that are there and they're naturally making relationships with these places. Our team will typically create a partnership tracker and we'll present ideas by which we think makes sense for those clients. And once we get approval, we'll go out and that's a lot of relationship building. It's inviting a guest in or a brand representative in and making sure that they feel that there is a cohesive touch point for whatever that brand or that activation may look like. And you massage it over time and you hope and pray and wish that it's going to work out. And five times out of 10, it falls apart at the last moment. And five times out of 10, you knock it out of the ballpark. But 
I think that that's where PR lies now. PR is how do you frame what this restaurant concept is or, or this culinary concept by which, what are those ambassadors for? What are those tenets by which are people are going to come and want to check it out? And it can be everything as low-hanging as a two-chef collaboration. I think that next week in Los Angeles, we've got Pop-Off LA, which Andy Wong and Crystal Kozer are doing. I, mean, I know that there's everything from Royce Burke doing a secret lasagna inspired by Anna Jack Tai with Justin over there. And I'm super excited to check that out. So the smallest things can turn the dial. And I think it's a lot of listening to your client, listening to chefs, and then kind of stepping in and trying to act as a guardian and a steward of what they're doing. And I'm lucky to be able to do that. I know you're super selective with the clients that you choose. I'm curious, what goes into that decision process and to whether you're going to take on a new client or not? What is that secret sauce that you're looking for? Look, I think food, hospitality, we're in the relationship business. And you go through a dating process. You talk to someone, they come to you or you find them. And we're lucky by which most of the carving block clientele that we've held and have is because of references and someone will introduce us to someone, which is the best way, obviously, in. We haven't had any like parasite happenings like the movie where it's like shit goes real south. And that's obviously a great step in. And then you kind of court them. You talk to them. What are their hopes and needs and dreams and how can you best fulfill it? And we're the first people to say, well, yeah, we can step in and we can do this, but you don't need us. Or here's how we would guide you along. I think that it's a testament to the power of community in Los Angeles, in the hospitality around the country and the world that I want everyone to do good. Even if it means that it's not money and dollars in my pocket and for my team, if a client's not right for us, it's not right for us for a multitude of reasons. And so again, we really champion and cherish as much of it as we possibly can. And we're lucky that along the way, we've amassed a pretty nice Rolodex of people that do need us. And then we do fill a solid gap for what their needs are. Working in the restaurant industry, there's always been plenty to worry about. And over the last year, cleanliness has been front and center in our minds and in the minds of our guests. Your world-class team and world-class patrons deserve world-class protection. Microband 24 Professional kills 99% of viruses and bacteria. It doesn't just sanitize and stop. It keeps killing bacteria for 24 hours, even when the surfaces in your restaurant are touched multiple times. And the EPA has approved Microband 24 Sanitizing Spray is effective at killing the virus that causes COVID-19. So you can achieve your most confident clean, touch after touch. I've got a two-parter for you. So the first question is, how would you say the restaurant media has changed since the pandemic began? And then the second part of that question is, how can independent restaurateurs capitalize on that? It's tough. I think that when the pandemic hit, you had larger juggernauts like the eaters and like the infatuations. And even look at like Time Out and Los Angeles Times, both of which like a lot of that food reporting personnel was diminished. They were laid off. They suffered the same things that a lot of restaurants did, where there just wasn't the bandwidth nor the money to be able to sustain them. And so we've lost a lot of good, wonderful writers along the way. And in the past month and moving forward, I think that we're going to see a, hopefully a great return to what the media landscape looked like prior to the pandemic. That said, that means that there's less writers to talk to and to tell stories with and to share their stories because they can only have in a certain amount of bylines that they're able to pump out. You look at people like 
Stephanie Brazo, who's right now at Los Angeles Times, who is the hardest working person, I think, in media. And I'm like, how are you working on five different stories? I think that sometimes we get blinded because it's not the road by which we walk to assume that these are easy things to pump out. But even when Farley is writing a general restaurant brief, that takes time and energy and research and development. And you have to really look through every lens of what that is. So it's hard. It's hard to find your footing, I think, in a space for an independent restaurateur or a small business owner to have leverage. I think that the biggest thing that I can say is to do it authentically and to share your story in the best way possible. And if you do those things, most of the time people take note of it. They gravitate towards it. And authenticity and honesty is, I think, one of the biggest things that we've come out of the pandemic seeking and really attaching ourselves to. And so it's tough going, but I think that there's, for as cliche as I think that there's brighter days for both food media and hopefully independent restaurateurs along the way. You've spent a lot of time getting media for other people, but you've also gotten press and attention in front of the camera as well. Talk to me about your relationship with Tastemade and how that partnership came about. So again, it goes back to chefs and brands and by proxy publicists. I think that we all have to be able and willing to put ourselves out there and do more than you typically would. I know that I'm more than a press release. And so it is and was important to me to be able to build into that world. I think that I know that based on our clients and based on the work that we do, that my word matters. And I've been lucky enough to hone that word in. And I want to be able to share that world with people. So Taste Made, my dear friend, Kate Green, who formerly was Nancy Silverton's right-hand woman and is now running partnerships for a fantastic company called Harper's Club that builds the wine collections for high-profile net worth individuals. She was very good friends and is very good friends with Darren Bresnitz. Darren has his own podcast, Snacky Tunes, which is fantastic, and everyone should go check it out. And they had melded this idea of looking at how kitchen and culture collide and what that might look like in a podcast form. And I was lucky enough to be dropped into that pod and to make that move swimmingly. And we had two fantastic seasons. And we were just about to go into production on the third season, literally the day of when the shutdowns occurred. And we had to cancel 12 chefs that were flying in around the country, cancel their flights and reposition the entire thing. And so we're optimistic that we are will return in a short time. And if not, it was two beautiful seasons of getting to share these experiences and these stories with people like Susan Finnegar talking about queer identity and how that's changed in the kitchen, or Andre Mack talking about the cultural differences of the black world in the wine space and how all these different kind of intricacies are stories that are and narratives that are worth telling in the food space that sometimes don't get enough attention. Did you have an agenda going into it? I joke with people all the time. I say, you know, with every episode, I have an agenda. There's usually a singular point that I'm trying to get across. As you guys collected interviewees and went through the topics you were going to cover, did you have the same intention? Yeah. I mean, look, there's always an agenda with these things, like going off the cuff completely and utterly is fun, but you never know what you're going to be left with. So of course, we came in, we built scripts around everyone, we knew what we were trying to get out of them. And as you know, as a host as well, you're kind of steering the ship, to say the least, you're trying to get these people to say these points in the most natural way that you possibly can. But we would preface them and we would say, this is what our topic is for the day, this is what we're looking to accomplish, and then let them kind of chat. At some point, 
the reason that you have, and I assume you agree also, you have these people on is because they have a story to tell and you want them to tell their story. And you just kind of get to be there and listen and take pride in the fact that there's a platform for these stories to be shared. Why do you think some restaurants get great coverage while comparable restaurants in the same tier with a similar offering don't? Yeah, it's a loaded question. I mean, I think that there are places that are, <laughs> obviously, I think that there's a lot of restaurants that are very deserving. And I think that, unfortunately, we live in a community and we live in a city that has new restaurant openings near every day. Especially before the pandemic, it was the proliferation of amazing restaurants you could go to was nonstop. There is and there was so much. And so, look, I fall privy to it. I would go to a restaurant and be there either too early or too late and have a meal that just didn't hit me in the right way and wouldn't go back. And then you'd go to places like Bavel. And I was there day two of friends and family. And I think I've been there 12 times ever since. I think that there are certain things that just conjure up within us what we want to eat. Right now, for me, it's also by proximity. I think we live in especially the pandemic has kind of forced us within our neighborhoods a little bit more than we were used to. And I'm excited to be able to get out there and dine at restaurants that I haven't had a full experience at places like Ospi in Venice or Detroit in the Arts District. But living where I live, which is kind of close to that Melrose Media District, I'm at Gigi's like once a week and I feel like I've become Gigi himself, themselves, however it is. And so I think that you create kind of anchors within the community of who is kind of ambassadoring for these spaces. But there's no right or wrong answer. I mean, I wish I could denote or share why certain places get the love and some don't, but it's not as simple as that. It's not, but is there something wrong with it? I mean, look, I had the good fortune of, I had the bad fortune of spending years on nobody's list, right? And then the good fortune of spending years on everybody's list. And I don't know how much benefit we got from being on the same listicles as they were released month after month or quarter after quarter or year after year. I don't know how much more benefit we got from being on the list repeatedly as opposed to just the first time. And I wonder if there was less of a cool club and more of like this openness and this adventure, kind of a Jonathan Gold-esque mentality where it's about seeking out what is new and different and special. If the industry in the neighborhoods that they serve would be better served. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that you're definitely not off the money with it. I Without walking and kind of talking in circles, I have a feeling I know what we're kind of both saying. I'd like to think that the media that we work with and we kind of commune with don't have biases and aren't holding prejudice against certain restaurants and not including them within that cool kid club. And you obviously see it. It's always like the new kid in town and on the hot list that everyone's clamoring to go to. And then certain restaurants are putting so much effort into what they do are being kind of cast aside for something that's a little bit lesser or appearing to be lesser. Look, at the end of the day, there is something that must be wrong. It doesn't mean that the restaurant's doing something wrong, but it means that they're doing something wrong for the person that's either eating there and has control over the editorial dictation of what's going on, or that the chef themselves is a difficult character to work with and makes things difficult for everyone around them. It can be a multitude of things that I think kind of hinders people from what it is. But there are restaurants also that get no love whatsoever and have built and amassed amazing followings because of the authenticity that they provide for their direct communities. And I think that we kind of shy away sometimes because we hear about all these flashy things. And then you go to a restaurant like Spartina in West Hollywood that 
isn't on every list, but every night that patio is packed with people. And it's not just people that were walking down Melrose. Like they are making reservations. There are specific tables that those people want to sit at. And it's a sexy, young, hip crowd. You know, I think that there are a lot of restaurants like that throughout Los Angeles that don't get the love publicly, but get the love privately from their guests. If you couldn't afford a publicist, because I'm sure that there are plenty of independent restaurateurs listening that can't, where should they turn their attention? What should they focus on to at least create awareness in the market for what they're doing? I think social media is every restaurant's best friend. I think that it can be a beautiful thing and it's a beautiful disaster sometimes. There's a level of desperation that some restaurants and chefs put into their social media that tends to create not a backlash, but can bite back at them. But I would strongly suggest, obviously, tagging those local accounts that you know are going to gravitate towards at least eyeballs. People are checking them, whether it is a local eater outlet or whether it is an influencer who has 130,000 followers. I think that there's also people within direct communities. You know, everyone wants to be an influencer now. And so I think that you look at you know, sometimes for our restaurant clients that open, we'll actually think about what are the local businesses around them and who are the owners of those businesses and do they share any social cloud and can they be a steward for these restaurants that maybe are a little bit more of a neighborhood spot. But you invite those people in and they feel like they're being taken care of and then they tell their friends and then they tell their friends and hopefully it creates an effect by which you build that community. I think at the end of the day, building your community is the number one thing and social media is a great tool to utilize to do so. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? I feel like obviously there's a reason why all of us are (laughs) in this industry. Look, to me, it's a niche space. Only those that are in the hospitality industry understand the throes of the hospitality industry itself. And I think that it's a beautiful opportunity for us to listen and learn and engage and educate each other about what we can and cannot do or what we can do and what we have done wrong and what we've failed at and what we've gotten better at. And I think that every opportunity to share those stories and experiences is a beautiful moment in time. So I hope that what I've gone through and where I am hopefully headed helps at least one person out there to do the same. That's Max Block. For more on Carving Block, go to carvingblockpr.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.